0: Welcome to
1: Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we
0: wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Dressed listeners, Cassidy and I are super excited about this week's episodes, and I say episodes plural, as this will be a two-parter this week, a very long overdue two-parter, I must say. (laughs) for one, two, three, four, five seasons now, I have been promising you all this episode. And as many of you know, Cass and I took a tiny little break for a bit while she was on maternity leave. And I, well, I just took a much needed break. And while I was off, I kind of started to feel this itch that I needed to scratch. I was really dying to dive headfirst into some sort of a research rabbit hole. And I thought, who better to focus on than one of the most important fashion designers of all time and definitely one of the most influential in the history of American fashion
1: hands down. I mean, April is, of course, speaking of the fashion phenom and iconoclast Claire McCardell. As fashion historian Valerie Steele has written, quote, it is impossible to imagine a Calvin Klein or a Donna Karen or a Marc Jacobs had there not first been Claire McArdle, end quote. And Claire's work is often cited as the epitome of that so-called American look, which emphasized and continues to emphasize minimalism, comfort, practicality, Claire embraced humble fabric, she had these witty solutions for closures and fits, as we'll discuss, and all her clothes were mass-produced at a relatively accessible price point during the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And frankly, her work stunned the American fashion industry who had, in the words of Adolf Klein, who was her boss at the time, never seen, quote, anything like the things Claire dreamed up. And her work remains so seminal that it has been said she, quote, redesigned both the style and national identity of modern American women.
0: I mean, that's that's no (laughs) pressure there, Claire. (laughs) And listeners, with all of that praise... And all of those accolades, awards, and even a little bit of fame that came Claire's way mid-career, it may come as a bit of a surprise that early on, she struggled desperately. You could say she was a bit of a square peg trying to fit into the very well-established round hole of American fashion. But before we get to that, let's learn a little bit more about Claire herself and her path to becoming as feminist author and activist Betty Friedan dubbed her, quote, the girl who defied Dior.
1: So Claire was born in 1905 in Frederick, Maryland, into a well-connected upper-middle-class family. And so not only was her father, Adrian Leroy McArdle, a bank president, he was also a Maryland state senator. And her mother, Eleanor Klingen McArdle, was a Southern belle whose first-rate education served her well as a politician's wife. And her love of learning was actually passed down to her children, which included Claire, and then Claire had three brothers.
0: Yes. And like many women of the era who could afford to do so, Eleanor McArdle employed a private dressmaker, and she employed her to reproduce and adapt the latest looks from French and American fashion magazines, which arrived like clockwork to the McArdle household. And despite being considered somewhat of a tomboy by her family, who nicknamed her Kick— Claire also loved fashion, and she devoured her mother's fashion magazines voraciously. And it's also been written that she sat for countless hours at the side of her mother's dressmaker, whose name was Annie Kugel. And she watched Annie work, and she soaked up all of this knowledge about garment design and construction, just like a little sponge.
1: And like many other great designers before her, Claire's first efforts trying her hand at fashion design were for her paper dolls. So by the time she was a teenager, she had graduated to like stealing pieces from her family's closets and then like (laughs) taking them apart and reworking them to make them better. You know, I mean, I wonder how that went over with her mother.
0: (laughs) Right? Can you imagine? I know.
1: Uh, We can only wonder if this was done with or without their prior knowledge and permission. I'm going to guess not. Although maybe her mom gave her hand-be-down garments that she no longer wore.
0: I'm sure infuriated her brothers, though. Like,
1: yeah, <laughs> Your pants
0: are different now. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, upon her graduation from high school, it was Claire's dream to move to New York City to attend the School of Applied and Fine Arts to study in their costume illustration and construction program. Her father, however, had other ideas, he was rather unyielding in his demand that his teenage daughter remain at home and begin her studies at least at the local community college. So she did. And there Claire took classes in the home ec department, home economics, of course. And unsurprisingly, she excelled in the sewing and pattern making classes. But apparently, Cass, she was a complete disaster when it came to cooking and chemistry. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and it seems that traditional academics were not necessarily Claire's strong suit. Even after her father finally gave in and allowed her to move to New York City to study at what would later become Parsons, she still struggled academically, so much so that she had to plead her case with the administration to let her study abroad in Paris her sophomore year. Her grades apparently had been poor her freshman year, but her design work showed promise and the school allowed her to take part in the Paris program.
0: And listeners, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that they gave her permission to go only if she was on academic probation of some sort. So she kind of always had that hanging over her head. And Paris turned out to be a dream for Claire, who discovered that the haute couture houses often sold off their unsold samples at steep discounts at the end of the season. And this particularly fascinated her in terms of the Vionnet designs that she could get her hands on. Yeah, I know, I, I would feel the same about that, I think. So basically she could purchase these couture garments for just a fraction of their value and then deconstruct them to deepen her understanding of pattern making and construction techniques.
1: And this exploration was actually something that she had started in New York the year prior. I mean, it was not uncommon for female students during the 20s and 30s to room in all-female boarding houses, which were sometimes run by charitable or cultural institutions. And in Clara's case, she roomed at the lodgings of the Three Arts Club with fellow fashion design students Josette Walker and Mildred Boykin, who would later marry to become Mildred Oric. And the three women actually became fast friends and would all go on to make their individual mark on American fashion as designers. And dress listeners, please keep that name Mildred Orrick tucked in the back of your head because she will come up later again in the context of McArdle's career and life.
0: Yes, she certainly will. They were lifelong friends after all. But back to what you were saying, Cass, about Claire's endeavors in deconstructing couture garments— in New York, apparently many of the well-heeled women who belonged to or supported the Three Arts Club had a habit of offering their past-season couture garments to the design students for a mere pittance. And Claire, Josette, and Mildred were able to snag pieces of couture for as little as $5 at the time. This would be something like $75 today adjusted for inflation. So, I, I, I'm, you know, 1% of their purchase price, something like that. <laughs> You know, if only we had that fashion history time machine that we always joke about, we could go back and snag some too.
1: I know, one can dream.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So for Claire, you know, this opportunity to
1: study garments from the inside out and to quite literally dissect them proved invaluable. And she said of her examination of V&A pieces in particular that at the time she was, quote, learning important things, the way clothes worked, the way they felt, where they fastened, end quote. And one would think that this firsthand knowledge of European couture techniques would have prepared her to succeed when she entered the job market, which was around 1927 or 1928. But again, this was also not quite the case.
0: Yep. For the next year or so, Claire picked up, Odd fashion jobs here and there, and time and time again was let go, aka fired. (laughs) What did stick, however, was a job working as a fit model for the department store B. Altman. Unpretentious and a natural beauty with a lithe, athletic frame, she was apparently very well liked at B. Altman by industry professionals and her fellow fit models alike. However, a career as a model was not the fashion industry position she desired. She wanted to design. And design she did. More on that after this brief break from a word from our sponsors.
1: Welcome back, dress listeners. So, Claire's big industry break came when she was hired by Robert Turk as his assistant in 1929. And not long into her tenure with Turk, he was approached by the design manufacturing house Townley Frocks to buy what was then a struggling independent design company. And one of his stipulations for the sale was that as the head designer for Townley, he would be allowed to bring his assistant, who was Claire. And Turk saw his young assistant's potential, and the two really worked closely together until this freak boating accident April claimed Turk's life in 1932, sadly. And following Turk's death, Townley asked the then-27-year-old McCardle to try her hand at completing his last unfinished collection on her own, which she did apparently well, as she was permanently hired on as Turk's replacement soon thereafter.
0: And just a little brief side note here, and I won't belabor this point because we have talked about it so much on the show already— But for anyone just joining us who may have missed it in the past, we're still firmly in the 1930s here. And in terms of American fashion design, it was was kind of moda operandi that American designers and design firms were looking to Paris for inspiration. And even illicit copying was considered fair game by many in the industry. So creating looks inspired by the latest Parisian couture was what was expected of Claire at this time. And to spur her along, Townley sent Claire twice a year to Europe, especially to Paris, to find inspiration and gather the pulse of European fashion. And this was pretty much standard practice at the time within the American fashion industry. And often Claire's former classmates, Josette and Mildred, were tasked with the exact same mission in their own jobs. And the three friends occasionally accompanied each other on the steamership trips they took across the Atlantic and back.
1: That sounds so fun and romantic, even though I know. I think it was we probably, should
0: go. I, know. I think we should go on one of those. We well, should go on
1: one of Dandy's yeah, trips. Dandy Wellington, past dress guest, has one coming up, dress listeners. Mm-hmm. So actually check it out. The Vintage Voyage, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um So once on European soil, Claire had a little latitude in her travels and frequently took detours off the usual fashion circuit of London and Paris and ventured to skiing and sporting destinations where she was often enamored more by the styles of regional dress she saw than the haute couture offerings and the salons of famed designers. So upon implementing some of these traditional design inspirations back home for the Townley Frock's label, Claire often found herself butting heads with company executives who yearned for her to stick to the, you know, established formula of copying or adapting the silhouette of European couture. And actually, if you wanna learn more about that, dress listeners, you can check out our episode from last year that was on the rise of the American designer. Because Claire was in no way alone In her frustration with the American fashion industry's reliance on the cachet of the French haute couture to sell designs, others very much shared her desire to break free from its vice grip, and that included, of course, past dress guest subjects, including Ethel Trapagan and Elizabeth Hawes, among many, many others.
0: As her biographers, Kola Johanen and Nancy Neff, have acknowledged, quote, McArdle knew that American women led quite different lives from their European counterparts and truly believed that only an American designer could offer them a truly American style. From her earliest days as a designer, McArdle was actively formulating and promoting the pared-down, no-nonsense aesthetic she felt was already inherently part of American culture. Despite her enthusiasm, however, nearly at every juncture of her career, the avant-garde visionary often encountered a gap between what she saw as style and what the marketplace promoted as fashion.
1: And Claire's iconoclastic views on style finally paid off in 1938, which is six years into her tenure at Townley Frock's. This is when she created hands down one of her most famous designs to this day, and that is McArdle's monastic dress, which at this point is the stuff of fashion legend, April. Yes, (laughs)
0: Yes, <laughs> and apparently the dress itself was never actually intended uh, for Townley. It was Claire's creation for herself. And the story has it that it was based on a description by a McCardo family member of what a traditional Algerian garment they had seen looked like. Um, it was described to her as having an undefined waist and that the front and the back panels of the garment were indistinguishable from each other. So basically the front looked like the back and the back looked like the front. So Claire conjured up her own interpretation of this garment based on the description and she realized it in um, a red schlubby wool. And apparently Claire was standing at a coffee stand on the street wearing this red dress and a buyer from the department store Best & Co approached her and asked her where she got her highly unusual design. Yeah, and I
1: mean, at this time, this dress was utterly unique. And as Claire herself describes it, not unique to history. So she describes the dress as, quote, a flowing robe-like design that the wearer shaped to her own waistline with a sash or belt. The dress first appeared in 1938, yet how... Can I say that? It appeared hundreds of years ago. Its design is classic. In 1938, it had shoulder pads and was very full. And April kind of already attested to this, but this dress essentially had no shape. It had no waistline. It fell from the shoulders, very full and tent-like, before it was shaped to the wearer's body, by the way, of a belt or a sash. And we just love this design because not only is it flattering, but it's flattering to like all kinds of of body types, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, And remember, the silhouette was loosely inspired by... a traditional Algerian garment. And that's what she meant when she says that the design's hundreds of years old. I would wager her take on it was entirely new, April. I don't know what you think. And then I'm also curious about the nickname monastic. Maybe it's because it relates to like the conservative nature of a monastic dress. I don't
0: know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, that wasn't the original name of the dress. Um, The original name of the dress was the nada frock, apparently. That's what Best & Co. called it when they ordered a hundred copies, more or less, immediately as soon as the buyer saw Claire and her red version. <laughs> and the first hundred dresses that they ordered apparently sold out in 24 hours. So they very quickly placed additional orders uh, for the dress and other colorways and other fabrics. And time and time again, this not a frock, as it was known then, and then later known as the monastic dress, it sold out as soon as the inventory hit the store. So Best & Co. decided to capitalize on this demand. They even began offering pre-sales of the model, which was priced at $30 at the time. Adjusted for inflation today, this would be about $600. So this was a ready-to-wear dress that wasn't exactly cheap, but neither was it in the very steep price ranges of Oak couture designs, which... Dominated fashion magazines during this era. So, this the popularity of this dress really proves that there was this market in the US at the time for this higher end of mid range fashion. You know, it, it this made the monastic dress a runaway hit for Townley. And quite curiously,
1: the monastic dress was also the cause of Townley frock's demise, which is super interesting. So, the runaway success of the not a frock or monastic dress. You know, the fashion industry really stood at attention and McArdle's biographers described this quote unquote sensation that the design incited um, and quoting a dress manufacturer is exclaiming, drop everything, there's a girl up the street making a dress with no back, no front, no waistline, and my God, no bust darts—the
0: the shock <laughs> or the horror—I yeah. don't know. Everyone loved it, though. Maybe the manufacturers were horrified.
1: Yeah, the stark simplicity of Mercado's designs was based on its draping technique, which was, with minimal examination, pretty easy to replicate.
0: Hmm. So copying, not only a norm with the industry at this time, but also kind of a mainstay within the American fashion trade. Countless companies knocked off McCardle's design for the monastic dress, and very tenaciously, Townley Frocks went after these copyists. But in the process of doing so, they accumulated so many legal fees that the firm went bankrupt before the year's end. It's just so crazy! I know this this single dress design was both the manufacturer's boon and simultaneously its bane.
1: So needless to say, this wildly successful designer, Claire, was now without a job, which is crazy. But she was now this known entity, thanks in part to not only her runaway hit with the monastic dress, but also her first place win for fashion design at the 1939 World Fair, which had been held in New York City. So it wasn't long before other design firms came calling, but it would actually be Hattie Carnegie who won out over Claire's other professional suitors with an offer for Claire to come on board as one of Hattie's many in-house designers. And Hattie Carnegie maybe deserves her own episode of dress. I mean, her namesake company, as you know, April, was one of the first established American fashion brands of note. And the business model at Hattie Carnegie was based entirely on its namesake functioning not so much as a designer, but more of an artistic director of sorts. She very much oversaw the designs of other designers that she hired, which included some of the biggest names in American fashion design, such as Norman Norell, Muriel King, Claire McArdle, who were hired as full-time staff or freelancers.
0: So Carnegie and McArdle clashed during Claire's tenure there. Forever the minimalist, Claire's aesthetic was deemed too tame, too unadorned by her boss, whose taste ran more akin to elaborate Parisian fashion trends. You know, after all, another segment of Hattie Carnegie's business was actually importing haute couture models realized in France, and then advertising them as exclusive offerings in her boutiques. And this was a way to get customers in the door to buy additional products. So while Carnegie and McCardle quibbled over design directions, the movers and shakers in American fashion were actually fans of McArdle's work for Carnegie, and including one Diana Vreeland, who was apparently so impressed with a model that Claire designed, which she purchased, that she personally asked to meet the designer.
1: And dress listeners, April and I are so happy to report that an example of this dress that Diana ordered is actually in the collection of the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And the CI actually provides this wonderfully whimsical description of the long brown and white striped silk dress that says, quote, only a magician with a quick twisting, snapping, enveloping legerdemain could make this McArdle dress. And dress listeners, not only did April have to tell me how to pronounce that, I also had to look up what legerdemain meant, which is a skillful use of one's hands when conjuring tricks, which is actually quite a lovely term. Um, and the caption continues On the hanger, it is limp amorphous and trailing on the body, it traces the voluptuous peregrination, or I guess what is a journey, of a Madame Grey bodice, but not one that is fixed into position or held forever for the couture client. Rather, the micardle is ready to wear and adaptable to a myriad of body types and proportions. The striped silk reinforces the curly cues and corkscrews of the bodice and accentuates the columnar skirt. The crisscross bodice is accomplished by two pieces of fabric contingent on the body, but with the effect of a perfectly contrived origami. So again, this is, I, I think, an otherwise shapeless dress is, geniusly shaped to the wearer's bodies with the use of sashes, which in this case are an extension of sashes that are used to define the bust line of this particular dress.
0: And the fact that McArdle's designs came alive once inhabited by the human form has been noted time and time again, because on a hanger, they belie very little of their construction genius. Diana Reland even went so far as to call one time appreciatively so. She called them pathetic. <laughs> um, <laughs> Deceptively pathetic. <laughs> yeah. The quote-unquote simplicity of McArdle's work is often deceptive, exactly as you just said. You know, there are these very complex geometries that are frequently disguised by the garment-soft drape. And again, quoting Valerie Steele here, quote, "'McArdle was a realist, not an artist or an architect of fashion.' Compared to the more lavish and formal creations of the Paris couture, McArdle's clothes were simple, frugal, humble, easy to make and easy to wear. They were not, however, necessarily easy to design, end quote.
1: McArdle's time at Hattie Carnegie came to a close after just two years. And it's also around the same time that she met her future husband. So on one of her frequent trips across the Atlantic, she became friendly with a fellow passenger by the name of Irving Drott Harris, an architect originally from Texas who had made a name for himself on the New York social scene. So he had actually went through a much publicized divorce at the time, which meant that he and Claire apparently dated somewhat clandestinely for years before they wed. The two knew that Irving's past marriage would not be well-received by Claire's father, and thus, Irving apparently did not meet Claire's family until they had been an item for years. By that time, they had even acquired a farm property together where they spent holidays and
0: weekends. Professionally, after leaving Hattie Carnegie, Claire did a short stint at a company called Winsome before a chance meeting in an elevator looped the course of her career back full circle. Claire's former employer, Townley Frocks, had been relaunched by its owner, Howard Geis, and he was in need of a head designer. And Howard was riding in an elevator one day in the fashion district with his production manager, Adolf Klein, when they happened to encounter McCurdle. So, going to bat for McArdle against Geiss's objections, Klein advocated hard for her reinstatement as the lead designer. And Claire was open to this arrangement, but with some caveats. Despite working for Geiss for years previously, their relationship had always been contentious. Guys frequently nixed McCardle's more avant garde designs, labeling them unsaleable. And to agree to this new offer from Townley for Claire, This go-round was going to need to be different.
1: Yeah, and actually in the Mercado family archives, there's this prophetic memorandum written on the back of a handwritten phone message and it reads, Claire McArdle clothes will all carry a C. McArdle label. They will be produced as the sample is made. If you do not like the way the sample is made, buy something you do like. No changes. (laughs) So Claire was basically now in a place where she could command concessions from potential employers and one such demand she made was for her name to appear on the Townley label and while this is certainly the accepted norm today, at the time this was highly unusual because countless American designers really toiled anonymously behind manufacturers' labels. For many, many years, this was the status quo, and their efforts were unacknowledged publicly. And Claire would be a really early exception to this industry standard practice.
0: Well, Geiss initially balked at Claire's demand to have her name on the label, Six months into her new term of employment, he gave in after prolonged pressure applied by Klein, who functioned as sort of an intermediary between the opinionated owner Geiss and an equally obstinate McArdle. Geiss was also now banned from the design studio cast <laughs> um, on the basis that his past visits unfailingly resulted in unsolicited design demands, conflict, <laughs> and strife. I like her. Yeah, yeah, I, I like Klein too for sticking up for her, and really Klein's gamble paid off because under this new arrangement, Claire McCardell flourished. So now she, you know, we're looking at her having unparalleled freedoms.
1: And McCardell first redesigned the Townley offices and showrooms to come in line with her unique brand of American minimalism. So. Walls were now painted black, navy, beige, and stark white. The flooring was replaced with glossy black linoleum, the perfect complement to the striking modernity of McCardle's designs. And in an era when the interiors of most American fashion brands embraced this sort of pastel boudoir look, have you, McCardle's statement was loud and clear. Moving forward, her modernist vision for Townley was to reign supreme.
0: Claire defined her own design lexicon Into what she termed macartalisms or signature elements of her design philosophy. These included her use of unpretentious, humble fabrics, including denim, jersey knits, ginghams, plaids, and stain-proofed cottons. Given the ready-to-wear nature of her clothes, fitting individual bodies was always a concern for Claire. And to solve the question of unique Figure types, she religiously employed sashes, wraps, and spaghetti ties so the wearer could shape the garment to their body at will, as we have already touched upon. Closures for her garments were somewhat of an obsession for Claire, who also famously used metal hooks and eyes and zippers as design elements, highlighting their appearance rather than hiding them.
1: Oh, yes, April. And buttons. She loved buttons. And she loved to call attention to the cut and line of her designs by using them. They were at once practical and decorative. So one of my all-time favorite McCardell garments, uh, which uses several of her McCardellisms, all at once is this wonderful play suit. It's from circa 1950, and it's in the Costume Institute at the Met. It's one piece. It's realized in this lovely buttercup yellow linen. It has a halter neck and mid-thigh shorts, and the bodice loops behind the neck to form the halter, and it crosses high at the neck and the front, then buttons down the side to close. And Claire selected these little wooden ball buttons. And while the buttons at the side of the bodice serve as a practical purpose as a closure, she also elected to extend the row of buttons down the side seam of the shorts as a form of adornment. And This simple spaghetti tie shapes the play suit at the waist.
0: Yes. And I mean, this is so classic, McArdle. You know, her clothes are always simple, but quite smart and this covetable balance between the practical and the playful. And once you get an understanding of her quote unquote McArdleisms, you can spot her designs right away. And Cass, I'm glad you brought up that play suit as an example. It's not quite swimwear but it's firmly in this category of sportswear. And Claire believed in designing clothes that, quote, solved problems. She said, quote, men are free of the clothes problem. Why shouldn't I follow their example? And a playsuit like the one you just described, Cass, might be the perfect ensemble to wear to an active summer picnic or a backyard barbecue in lieu of a dress. And Claire herself was a lifelong sports enthusiast and firmly believed a woman's wardrobe needed to be fit her lifestyle, not the inverse.
1: And this was something actually of a uniquely American philosophy. I mean, the emphasis placed on the intersection of chic with comfort and practicality. On the American look, Claire once said of her sportswear designs, quote, for me, it is American. What looks and feels like America, it's freedom, it's democracy, it's casualness, it's good health. Clothes can say all that, end quote.
0: One of my personal favorite McArdle Ensembles cast is also at the Costume Institute. It is a dark denim number, and it's actually a little three-piece situation. It has a below-the-knee skirt with a fitted waistband and has really deep pockets at each hip. We know this because Claire used another mercantilism, double rows of contrasting top stitching to trace the outline of the pockets. So their shape is plainly outlined and this also functions as a form of embellishment. The skirt itself closes down the center front with six cream buttons. And it could be worn on its own with a sweater or something else or a blouse, or it could be paired with either of the two tops, which which match. There was a midriff revealing halter top that reveals the back, but in the front, it's scooped around just around the neck above the collarbone, and it closes in the front with a single white button just above the navel. So it's very demure in the front, but very sexy in the back. And maybe sexy wasn't quite appropriate for the time of day
1: or the particular occasion, which is why this set came with an additional top. Again, it's in the same dark denim, but this one was more in the form of a boxy top with short sleeves and a collar which transitioned into a V neckline. And this distinctive treatment at the neckline was emphasized once again with her signature double rows of top stitching.
0: The interchangeability of this ensemble is McArdle through and through. Not only was she an early proponent of separates, she also created capsule collections of five to seven staple pieces and promoted them as perfect for not only travel, but everyday wear. Many of her popular designs were again offered season and season again, and this was something that was unheard of in the fashion industry. You know, manufacturers were really trying to get completely new models Out each season. So, of the timeless nature of her designs, Claire once remarked, quote, you can take a dress of mine that you bought 10 years ago, lower the hem, make a few accessory changes, and wear it today, and it will still
1: look good. I mean, it's so funny because she's saying 10 years ago, and I'm thinking, how about 75 years ago? Because, (laughs) you know, Claire's designs really remain fresh and modern, even to this very day. I want all of them. I would wear all of them. And, you know, this is why they are now also highly collectible.
0: Yeah, well, you are not alone in that desire, cast because uh, just the other day, past dressed guest, Jesus Herrera and I were talking about McCardle, and she was saying that she's on the hunt for original McArdles, and I was like, yeah, uh, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> Let us know how that goes, please, and share. <laughs> Um, You know, the best examples of her work are tucked away in museum collections, or if they are up for sale on the vintage market, they command prices that probably exceed what they sold for when they were new if you adjust for inflation. You know, just one example that I can point out is there is a supremely good example of McArdle up for auction right now on firstdibs.com. And it's this tonal gray-striped cotton that that she's mitered together to kind of like create those chevron shapes. It has a sort of like a turned shawl or sailor collar in the front. And um, the price tag attached to this is nearly a whopping $6,000. And just to point out that that is not a fantasy price, someone actually has that dress on hold right now. So
1: <laughs> Yeah, I believe it. Highly, highly covetable collector's items. And... Fret not, dress listeners, while that McArdle might not be coming your way anytime soon, what is coming your way later this week is part two of this episode, because April and I have really only covered her early career up to 1940 at this point. So on Thursday, we are going to delve into her work during the years of World War II and discuss many of her other signature designs, including her swimwear, the popover dress, and her thoughts on the prevalence
0: of Dior's new look. That does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider where chic comfort resides in your closet next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you. So if you would like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we will be posting lots of McArdle this week. And Cass, as you know, we are Currently transitioning more into the Reels format. I think worse <laughs> hand, but yes, we're trying. Yes, we're <laughs> experimenting. Um, so, do please let us know how you feel about the Reels versus the static posts. The Reels will also appear in our main feed as well, so you can access them that way. But this is new territory for us, so so bear with us. We're while we do some exploring and experimentation. I, i for one, am very bad at technology. So Cass is giving me tutorials along the way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much better I am, but it is fun. We're having fun. So if you haven't checked out the reels that we've done already, check them out on our page. So thank you, dress listeners. And thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each and every week. We will catch you with part two on Claire McArdle on Thursday.